The first section is creation. There's two meta narratives that you will not see in this section because the first one is the first meta narrative you won't see is that humans live in exile as sinners in rebellion against Yahweh. That rebellion and exile doesn't begin until chapter 3. So creation is chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. So you're not going to see that theme. Likewise, you're not going to see Israel as a chosen people until we get to chapter 12 of Genesis. So those two meta narratives, the first one doesn't develop until chapter 3, and the other one doesn't begin to develop until chapter 12. But other than that, all the meta narratives, you're going to see them as we go through. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, our translation is heavens and earth, but in the original language of Hebrew, that word heavens can also be translated sky. And it's the word shemayim, which can be translated sky or heaven. And so, if it's plural, and you know it's plural by all the modifiers around it, then it refers to the sky. If it's singular, then it refers to heaven. In this particular context, it's plural, which means it's sky. So he creates the sky and the earth and everything in between. And so it's the same idea. This is what's called a mirrorism. When you refer to one thing and then another thing, and it includes everything in between. It mirrors on itself. And we use mirrorisms like God is the alpha and the omega and everything in between that he is the first and the last and everything in between. That's the implication. Or he was and is and is to come and everything in between. And so that's the idea of a mirrorism. Now, God is not creating heaven here because he already is in heaven. However, it already exists. He already dwells there with these sons of God and with the angels. It is the sky and the earth that he's creating. And you know this because as it goes on, it says, hey, he created the sky and the earth and everything in between. And then he begins to describe how he creates it. And he starts describing very literal things in creation. So this is not the creation of heaven where God dwells. This is the creation of the material realm. And that's how it begins. This is the creation of the world that we know today. The world that we live in. The world that we're a part of. This statement reveals that Yahweh has no origin story. He simply begins, or he simply exists. And every other creation count in all of the world, in all cultures, in all religions, there's an origin story. The world begins with this watery, chaotic mass. Now, they don't actually believe that the world began with water. This is water, the raging sea, is a symbol of chaos. And so in the Egyptian account, the world is, there's just this dark, formless mass of water. Because water represents chaos, darkness represents chaos. Water and the raging sea, the dark depths of the abyss, represent chaos in the Bible. But water in like a stream, or a fountain, or a, a, a pond, or a spring, those represent life-giving water. When God wants to portray chaos, he portrays the beast in Revelation and in Daniel coming up out of the raging sea, because that's chaos. But when he wants to describe life, he talks about the deer panteth for the water by the stream, or Christ will give you water everlasting, or the river of life that's flowing out of the temple. Those are life-giving waters. 
or the glassy sea that God's throne sits on in heaven. That represents life and order. The creation begins, and all creation counts with this darkness, because no life can thrive in darkness, and this watery, chaotic, raging sea, because life can't thrive in that. Okay, even today, we're absolutely scared of the typhoon, the hurricanes, and the raging sea. We have not been able to control them with all of our technology and all of our human superiority. We still cannot conquer those things. These are represent life cannot exist. And you're like, oh, what about a boat? Well, even if you're living on a boat, you can only live on a boat for so long before you have to go back to land to get resources, food, and fresh water. And so the raging sea represents an absence of life. In every single one of these stories, it is out of this raging sea that the land forms, and out of this raging sea, the gods come into existence, and life begins for the first time ever. Likewise, even in the atheist account of evolution, there's the, these, this primordial goo of amino acids and all this kind of stuff, and then there's this big bang that sparks life, and out of that comes life. And there is no God in atheism, and life begins with an origin. And so every creation account you go through, there's the origin of the God or the gods. There was a time that they did not exist and a time that they did exist. Yet with the Bible, it begins, in the beginning was God, period. It doesn't explain where he came from. And nowhere throughout the Bible do we ever get an origin story. So right here, even though there's similarities between the other creation accounts, there's a watery chaos mass, there's darkness, and there's this God, they're right off the bat, we have a stark difference between this and every other creation account, and that's the fact that God has no beginning. He has no origin in any kind of a way. He just simply exists. Now, the narrator goes on to show how Yahweh created everything that is in the sky, including the galaxies, land, and sea, demonstrating that he has ultimate authority and control over all things. Now, in all creation accounts, there's a three-tier system. And so you have the sky above, which includes outer space. In the ancient world, they believe that outer space was in the sky. Because when we look at the sky, you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky. And the only reason we know that the sun, the moon, the stars, and the skies are not, sorry, the sun, the moon, the stars are not in the sky is because we have telescopes and spaceships. And we can see beyond the atmosphere, and we can see that we know that the sun is billions of light years away, or whatever it is, and that it's way bigger. But in the ancient world, all they had is their eyes. They weren't dumb. They were just limited with the technology that they had at the time. And the only technology they had were their eyeballs. And so they, you look at the sky, and that's why little kids, they draw the sun and the stars and the moon in the sky. Because that's the way you see it, and that's the way you observe it. So when we think of outer space, they would have no concept of outer space, except that outer space and the sky are collapsed on themselves, and they're the same thing. So when God describes the sun, the moon, the stars being created, we're thinking outer space, but they're thinking sky. That's why in the Hebrew and in the English translation here, there's no distinction between sky and outer space in the creation account because they don't have that understanding. They don't think that way. Just like a little child cannot comprehend that as they're drawing their stick figure, sun, smiley face pictures. God creates everything. The next tier is the land. 
And then the next tier is the waters below. And whenever you go through the Bible and any other creation account, they always describe this as a three-tier system. The sky, the land, and the waters below. And so these are the three main things that Yahweh is going to focus on as he describes creating. Unlike the other pagan accounts, there is a God that comes into existence, and then another God that comes into existence, and another, and another, and another, and another. And then one God creates the land, and another God creates the sun, and another God creates the waters, and another God creates humans, and another God creates vegetation. And they all create different things, which means they can only control and have authority and power over the thing that they created. You only have authority over the things that you create. When you give birth to children, you have authority over that child, not everybody else's child, unless somebody gives up their authority to you. And when you create something, you have authority and to do whatever you want with that table that you built, not the painting that somebody else painted, unless they give up control. This is the idea that they only have authority and power to control the thing that they created. Yet with God, it says on day one, he spoke. Day two, he spoke. Day three, he spoke. Day four, he spoke. Five, six, he spoke. And by creating everything, he has authority over everything, and he has power over everything. And there is no other God that he shares authority or power with in any kind of a way. The only exception to this in any religion is Allah. And that's because Allah is a plagiarism of Judaism. This is the idea that is being portrayed here, is that he creates on each individual day, meaning that he's responsible and has power and authority over each thing. This is the idea that the Bible begins with. This is why you know that he is the sovereign king creator over all creation. And that's the first thing that's established before anything else. The main point that the Bible begins with is who is God as sovereign over everything. That means that since he brought everything into existence, he has the right to have authority and judge everything in existence, and he has the right to take anything out of existence. That's his prerogative. As you begin to read, then you begin to see the love. The love is the thing that begins to begin to develop later. Now you're like, why didn't he start with love if that's his first and primary thing? Well, probably because no other being has this concept of love, a loving God. No human has a concept of a God that is loving in the pagan mythologies. And when you're teaching somebody something brand new that they never encountered before, it's better to start with what you have in common. You don't introduce a brand new concept to a kid that they have never, ever heard of before. You start with what they do know, and you make connections from the known to the unknown. And everybody has a concept of power and creation. What they don't have a concept is a God that loves. And so he begins with the authority of God first. And then he begins to start with the known authority and power and begins to make connections to the love and the relationship. And that's how the Bible begins here. So the pre-created universe, the universe as we know it now, did not originally exist in the way that we know it is described in three different ways. It is formless and empty, covered in darkness, and a watery abyss. This is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2a. This is how God describes it. Now, formless and empty. You cannot have life in something that is formless and empty. Formless and empty describes a vacuum, the void of space. 
There is no form, and it's completely empty. That's a vacuum. Then he describes it as covered in darkness. There is no light. Zero light. Can't see your hand in front of your face, so to speak. Therefore, no life can exist. Because if there is no light, there is no life. And we know that as a scientific fact. Then the third thing that is described is a watery abyss. And this Hebrew word is the watery raging chaos abyss. Now, you know you do not take this literally. The Bible is not literally saying there was water first and then God created. Because then you'd be like, wait a minute, if there was water before God created, then that means he didn't create the water. Well, you know that he's not talking about literal water here. Because how can you have water that is formless and empty? It's not possible to have water that's formless and empty. He's using metaphors. Kind of like when I say, my wife and I went to see the sunset last night. And everybody would be like, oh. But then we all know I actually didn't do that. I didn't actually go see the sunset. In fact, none of you have ever seen the sunset in your entire life. Right? Why? Because the sun doesn't set. Now, if I were to be more scientifically accurate, I would say my wife and I sat on the earth, and as we rotated backwards, the sun disappeared over the horizon of our vision. That would be the scientific accuracy. The metaphor is a little bit more romantic and a little bit more simplistic. Or when I say she broke my heart. No, she did not. She did not pound through your chest with her fist and rip your heart out and break it in half. That would be horrific. She did not do that. You're killing me, Smalls. No, they're not. They're just annoying you. I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. No, you couldn't. You would die. Okay, so all these are metaphors, and they describe our emotions or state. But nobody goes around like, no, you don't really mean that. That's not accurate. And we mix them all together. Last night, my wife and I went, very literal, to see the sunset, metaphorical. And we mix these things all together all the time in our language. Sometimes our language is descriptive where we're describing the way that things look or feel like the sun is in the sky, that's descriptive, not literal. And sometimes they're prescriptive, meaning I'm literally stating what it really, truly, literally is. And we mix these all together all the time. Oh man, that is so cool. Or that is choice. Or totally rad. Okay, all these things are metaphors and, and things. What the Bible's doing is it's using metaphors. And the metaphor is a raging sea. God is not saying the raging sea literally existed and it was formless and empty. He's saying that there was chaos. What he's doing is he's describing unorderliness. There is no life. When everything began, there was no light. Now, this is important because every other creation account begins with the sea raging, but the sea is a god. It's an evil, vindictive, cruel god. But God doesn't describe it that way. He just says, it's chaos. There's no order. Let me define chaos. When we think of chaos, we think of evil. We think of people attacking each other, or hurting each other, or rioting, or um, post-apocalyptic worlds, or zombie invasions. We think of chaos being evil. But chaos is an umbrella term that can refer to lots of things. So if you take all your clothes and throw them all over the floor and then take all your colored pencils and throw them all over the floor and then take all your books and throw them all over the floor, you would say, this is chaos. But we would not say, the room is evil. Okay? That would, that, that's different. You could say you're evil for the chaos you created. <laughs> but that wouldn't be loving and that would be cruel. 
Then you can say the serial killer that's going out and killing people, that is chaos. That's a disorder of life. And so chaos is an umbrella term that just means that things are disorderly or they're unordered. And it can be as a result of evil, or it could just be a result of an absence of life. What God is describing here is that there is no order, there is no life. That's the first thing that he wants you to know. Because what he's trying to communicate is before there was anything, there was him. The gods, the land comes first, and then the gods appear. And God's saying, no, 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 no. There was nothing when I existed. These are descriptors of a lifeless chaos. Now what he begins to do is he begins to reverse these descriptors. He begins to undo them. Now notice the Bible first says it's formless and empty, then it's darkness, and then it's a watery chaos. Then in verse 1 to B, the Holy Spirit begins to hover over the waters. Now what's interesting is the word water and 1 to A is chaos. But the word water in 1 to B is a completely different Hebrew word that communicates life, spring. The kind of water that you drink in order to live. And the difference between that is the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. That's what changes it. It's the Holy Spirit that begins to introduce life and bring life. This word spirit, it comes from the Hebrew word ruach. And the word ruach can mean breath, wind, or spirit. The wind slash breath slash spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And it transforms the waters into these life-giving waters. The word hovering is the same word that is used of a mother bird hovering over her young and protecting them and caring for them and loving them. This is the first glimpse of a God who loves. Because in every other creation account, the gods come into creation and they pull out their swords and they begin to battle the sea and they begin to destroy the sea and they begin to just cut up animals and attack the dragons and this bloody chaos mess that they create. But the first thing that God introduces is I began to hover over the waters, over the void, the nothingness, like a loving mother bird. And then I gave birth, metaphorically, to life. And the waters are turned into life-giving waters. And so the first thing we see here is this is the beginning of redemption. God is redeeming the void into life. He's making it life. And he's doing it in a loving, motherly, nurturing, caring kind of a way. And that's the idea that's first introduced. So he first undoes the watery chaos and brings life. And then he says, let there be light. Now, the second way that the creation is described is darkness. So God then undoes the darkness by pronouncing life or light. He speaks light into existence and then he separates it from the darkness. He never created darkness. He drives the darkness away and he casts it away. Then he begins to form and fill creation. So the last, the first thing that was described was formless and empty. Now what God begins to do is on day one, he forms the light. And then on day two, he forms the waters above and the waters below, the sky and the oceans. And then on day three, he forms the land and he forms plants. Then on day four, five, and six, he fills the things that he forms. So what does he fill the light with? He fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then he fills the waters above and the waters below with fish and birds. 
or birds and fish, to be parallel. And then he fills the land with animals and humans. So by the time you get to the end of six-day creation account, he has formed and filled everything. And he has brought order. And there's a pattern here because you have three days and then three days, and they all parallel each other. They match up with each other. That's orderly as well. And then on day one, he speaks once. And on day two, he speaks once. And on day three, he speaks twice. He speaks land and plants. And then on day four, he speaks once. And on day five, he speaks once. And on day six, he speaks twice, animals and humans. And that's patterns. And so everything is creating patterns here. And when you have patterns, you have order and you have structure. So what he does, he describes the earth in verses 1 and 2a as formless and empty, a watery or darkness and a watery chaos. And then he undoes them in the reverse order. And by undoing them in the reverse order, he creates a parallel as well. And there's structure and order here. And so what he's saying is, I am the God of order. In every other creation account, the gods encountered this dragon that has always existed before anything else did. And it's a demonic chaos dragon. And the gods grab their weapons and they battle them and cut the head off of the dragon and bleed it out. And once they've conquered the dragon, they have the right to create but they don't know how to create. So they pull things out of the dead body of this dragon or out of the dead body of the sea somehow. And they create life out of this bloody chaos monster. And that's how they explain why there's chaos in the world because they created that. And the gods come out of this chaos water too. And so they're chaotic. Even in atheism, if creation begins with a big bang that randomly produces life and then life keeps getting randomly produced, then you yourself are random and chaos. And every atheist will tell you that humans are random. They're a chance accident that has no purpose. We live and then we die. If they don't believe that, then they're not a full-blown atheist. And so in every creation account, everything is chaotic. Everything is random. Everything is chance. But what God is communicating is, I didn't create randomly. I didn't create out of chance. I didn't create out of chaos. I first ordered, and then I created life. That means that what God created is good. Each day he pronounces it good. Good. It was good. It was good. It was good. No other creation account says that because what the word good means is it's functioning the way that it was designed to function. Good is not morality. When you say they're a good boy, we, we use an immoral term, but good is not a moral term. Good is functioning the way that it's supposed to function, the way it was designed to function. So if your car is working, it is good. It's functioning the way that it's supposed to function. Well, then why do we call people good? Because if you're loving God and you're loving others, then you're functioning the way you're supposed to function. God designed you to be a being that reflects his image, and he is a God of order and love. The, the Mosaic Law says love God and love others. So if you are reflecting the image of God and you're creating order and you are loving people, then you are functioning the way that God designed you to function. Therefore, you're good. But if you're selfish and you're hurting people and you're following your own desires, then you're not good because that's not the way you were designed to function. And that's why when they said, good teacher to Jesus, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Only he is functioning the way he's supposed to function. So if you're going to call me good, do you really understand who I am? Because if you call me good, then you're claiming that I'm God. 
because only God functions the way he's supposed to. But Jesus is going to die for us to restore us back to the way that we were created to design. That's why I think I mentioned this before, but my principal, Buzz, is like, he's a good boy. I mean, you know, in that, like, non-fall and he's a horrible, evil sinner, deserves to go to hell kind of a good boy. But just that practical, like, generally speaking, he's good. This is what God does. It is good. It is good. It is good. And he's creating this good world. It's functioning now. The pagans can't claim that. Even atheists can't claim that the world is good because the world is constantly evolving to get better. So this refutes. Now, there are, I, don't, I don't believe that there's a lot of scientific evidence in the Bible to refute atheism, but I do believe there's lots of theological ideas and truths that refute atheism and many, many, many other religions. 